With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are YWales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever you are in the world today. Uh, really an exciting one. So we have a kind of a right at the edge of launching, uh, funded, not yet ready for, for full deployment. Uh, and we're here with Sprace Protocol. I've got my buddy, as always, uh, Mr. Goss, who's traveling the world. And, and again, I have these amazing like backgrounds here, but his is, his is actually real. How are you doing today, Mr. Goss? I'm doing super well, and I'm super excited. I'm in Guadalajara today, so it's nice and warm unlike Tug, so uh, I am quite happy to be doing this from a different spot. We're, we're, we're thrilled with you continuing the uh, the crypto tour and and making sure that everyone knows that Web3 truly is decentralized. You can, as long as you have a halfway decent internet connect, connection, you can do anything you want in this world. And you're allowed so. to do it from wherever and no one cares. So it's pretty nice. <laughs> it's preferable too. Um, but let's let's jump, jump over to uh, the, the team over here at Space Protocol. We have uh, Ragav and, and Joel. And let's go ahead and, and start with you, Joel. Uh, you know, how did you get here today? You know, what, what was the path to get you into wanting to have a, a Web3 protocol uh, like this? Um, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because I probably got here differently than a lot of other folks. I'm not a, uh, a software engineer or anything by background. Raghav has a little bit more of that background. My background is in finance um, and uh, investment banking and then private equity and then running a niche non-correlated real asset fund. And really it was a... My, my career path has been largely fueled by frustrations that things don't exist that I think should exist. And that was how Raghav and I got together years ago and started running a fund together, solving a problem that we felt didn't have a good solution. And it was uh, over a period of many months as I started to understand a little bit more about blockchain and what it does and what it can do that it was kind of an inside joke for a while. We kept saying, oh, we should, we should just put our business on the blockchain. And after a while, I was like, I really think we should put our business model on the blockchain because what we've developed is really powerful. And I think it, it would solve some real problems. And um, I, I know I haven't explained anything about what that is or what problems we solve, but that, that was kind of the, how the conversation came to be. And it was almost an inevitability. Sometimes I, I compare myself um, to like a, a, a pretty good brick and mortar business owner in like 1994, who's going, I think there's something to this internet thing, and I think my business should maybe be online, but I'm not sure exactly how that looks. And so I've been in the last you know several months getting people who can help me understand how that looks and what that needs to look like. And Raghav and I have gone, you know, suddenly and way over our heads and learned how to swim a little bit in these deep waters of of, um, of blockchain and things that are changing every single day, and understanding what Web three really is and what it can do. And we've just become increasingly convinced that uh, oh. Oh wow! This is this is uh, the world's going to be very very different, and we want to be on the leading edge of it, not on the trailing edge of it. So, I, I don't know if you have a lot of kind of financier backgrounds, but um, it's it's been a, a path of innovation and trying to solve real world problems and trying to anticipate what's going to be valuable to the world in a year, two years, three years. Um, and so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm I'm learning a lot, and I'm I'm pro I'm behind on on some things in terms of 
I go to blockchain conferences and I understand the first one I went to, I think I understood 25% of what was being said. The next one, maybe 50%. I go to finance conference and be a keynote speaker. So it just, it's just a whole different world. You know, it's amazing though. Uh, and we hear the story quite often from people coming from TradFi and, and, and various, uh, you know, kind of traditional finance sources, you know, that once, once you understand and once you kind of, you know, you've, you've taken that red pill and you've seen the behind the scenes, uh, look at this, um, how dynamic, of a change and how eye-opening it is. Raghav, what was your first eye-awakening experience with blockchain technology uh, to the point where you said this is something you want to do full-time and, and you're willing to, to go uh, uh, build in a very volatile space? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple of things. And look, like most, most, I think, creative innovations are born from a place of frustration. And I, I, I would say that for me, it came from a very similar kind of um, position. When we, like, like Joel said, we started our um, investment fund about three and a half, maybe four years ago at this point in time. And, uh, and we went through a process of bringing something and birthing something that was relatively unheard of and new to the world at that point in time. And we, and we understood the complications and effort and problems that um, people with innovative ideas have, especially when you're trying to raise money. That's not from venture capitalists. Uh, a lot of what we're trying to do is was was uh, was very much um, uh, outside of the traditional world, and and I think from as a part of that journey and part of that process, we just got to the point of realizing that look, we're onto something. If there's this many calcified thought processes out there where people are just unable to break out of, well, this is how it's always been done. You go to a bank. Well, no, this is how it's always been done. You go to a lender. Oh, what do you mean you don't take you know? There's only equity and debt. There's nothing else, and and so that that itself was a was a telling point for us about three and a half years ago. I was a more reluctant one in, in this relationship in terms of moving to the blockchain. To be perfectly honest, um, I think three four years ago there was still a lot of um, skepticism about the space. Not that it's completely <laughs> cleared up now, but there's but there's a little bit of a you know, especially for people who come from from uh, not from the blockchain world and, and maybe you know some tech background, and even within the tech within the tech world, there's there's still a lot of skepticism around: is it real? Can it be regulated away with a with a snap of somebody's fingers? And so, so I was I was a little more reluctant, but I think inevitably we just saw we just saw the writing on the wall. The macro trends were there, the, the geopolitical trends were there, um, and leaving all that aside, from where our business was, we just saw a unique opportunity, which, which just had not been done. And our process began, I would say, what, do you, what would you say, more than a year ago, about two years ago, where we started researching, talking to people, trying to understand how we would do what we are doing and do it in a way that's effective and actually makes sense to the blockchain world. And, um, and here we are today. I guess it's, it's, been a, it's been a learning process over the last couple of years, uh, but we're, we're coming up the curve rapidly. And, and, and I've, you know, I think everyone's heard this, but if you're, out of the, if you're out of the ecosystem for even a couple of months, you might as well just start over from scratch. So there's, there's a daily learning process, which, which I think we, and both Joel and I are lifelong learners. We've, I've switched, I've switched what I do maybe a half a dozen times. Uh, so learning and, and coming up to speed on something new is not, uh, not a unique experience and, for either and of us. Greg, if you're, you're a startup guy, correct? Like you've, you've, you've been doing this for a while. Yeah, uh, I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing a couple of different startups. I, uh, uh, you know, I started off very traditionally as a consultant, um, and then, uh, kind of moved over to 
early stage companies. The first time I heard of Bitcoin was 2008. I was in grad school then, and uh, a really good friend of mine who's a venture capitalist now uh, uh, was was yelling about it and screaming screaming about it up and down the halls of B school, and and uh, and I was like, yeah, he's crazy. Let's not touch that with a ten foot pole. <laughs> but, but you know, and this was this was at the at the genesis of Bitcoin, and then. Uh, so I did own some Bitcoin back then and conveniently have forgotten the, you know, the key phrases and lost whatever I had back then. Uh, but, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, uh, and since then, you know, and after that, uh, you know, uh, did the startup thing at Groupon, uh, went to another early stage um, company that was in the uh, digital marketing space. Uh, and then another uh, early stage company that was in the uh, the, re- the real asset revenue generating space. So I've so for me, it's it's all about finding those little niches, finding those areas which no one thinks about in a in an obvious way, and and figuring out how we could do something there that that's unique and and um, awesome. well positioned. Great, great, great history. Um, so let's go ahead and, and jump right into tackling space protocol. And who wants to uh, who wants to give the elevator pitch on on what this is, why it exists, and and why we all need to to go utilize it? I, I'll give uh, you know we we. Raghav and I both approach things very differently, which is helpful because we always bounce everything back and forth. There's a, it's even, uh, you know, our personalities and our outlooks are very different um, with the, the joke, but it's actually true is I'm an endurance runner and he's a tennis player. And so it's, he's kind of, where's the ball? What do we have to do? And I'm kind of going, we're going this way. And that's, so in order to understand what we're doing, I, I have to give a really quick background on, on what we've been doing because what we're doing is we're bringing something that we've been doing to a new and better place. What we've been doing is solving a a major problem in finance, which has to do with real assets. And we, we had the, um, the, we made the creative switch years ago saying, look, assets are always financed on credit and that's extremely limiting. And it's the wrong way to look at them because then they're always treated like depreciating liabilities. When, the reality is they're the thing that enables all the revenue. When we say real assets, we just mean hardware, hard assets that are the centers through which business is done so that revenue can be generated. And that's a very, very broad universe. And we actually created the first ever institutional fund. And we have institutional investors, including publicly traded funds. So we're, we come from a very institutional space. And so we're used to being audited and understanding the complexities and the regulations and all that sort of thing. That's, that's our life. Um, but what we solved was, I'll go back, we created the first ever institutional fund that all it does is buy real assets and gets a share of the revenue that they generate. And that unleashes so much value in businesses because it removes the capex from the conversation. It's, it's, it's equivalent to the switch of software becoming SaaS, where it suddenly fits into an operating budget instead of a capital budget. And boom, it just it, it can do anything now because it can fit into any facet of the enterprise. Well, nobody had made that switch for hardware. It was largely limited by the financing structure. So we created a, a financing structure, and we actually have a couple of patents pending around some pieces of it because we we couldn't believe that nobody had done this. And um, and then looking at it more and more, we determined that you know these real asset pools that we have do a couple of things. They they create very stable, high yield, uncorrelated revenue, and they store value very effectively. And I was looking at the world going, I think value storage is going to be a big deal because right now, if you if you want to store value somewhere, you're very limited. It's either in the traditional central banking system or you buy a Picasso or maybe some gold. And that's kind of it. 
We said, no, we've got these machines, that uh, these pools of real assets with, with revenues attached to them, and those revenues are non-correlated, and they're not attached to market prices, and they kind of just mushroom over time. What if this could back an actual protocol, and what if we could create a marketplace where real asset owners could get uh, the, the liquidity that they need, that we know that they need, and people who are trying to store value can participate in that value storage pool by way of the revenues over time. So that's uh, it, it very vaguely what we've built and what we're building is we've, we've fully architected a protocol that enables that to happen. And I'll be quiet there because I know Raghav has his uh, take on it as well, but that's, um, that's how I very think cool. Before we do that, quick question. Can you give us some examples? Like I'd, I'd love to have some like examples of these type of deals because I think that'll be super, super easier to understand that way. Sure. Yeah. Um, how about I'll give a legacy example of what we've been doing. And then, Raghav, if you want to give the example of how it would look on the protocol, since we were talking about that this morning, is that good with you? Yeah, go for it. So, so what we've been doing is we've been coming alongside a business owner. You know, let's just let's give an example of a um, a, uh, an IO, a, a track and trace IoT company. So they've got a, a logistics uh, platform where they're saying, hey, Mr. Large Enterprise, we can tell you where all your stuff is all the time. Great. And that's an op- they're solving an operating problem. They're optimizing operations. And so they're talking to an operations manager at a company that's bigger than they are saying, hey, with our software, we've got this dashboard. We can tell you this and that, and, and we, can, we can save you 10%. Fantastic. Okay, we just need you to buy $750,000 worth of these sensors so that we can deploy them. And that's where it all comes to a screeching halt. And the ops manager goes, I don't really have a CapEx budget. I don't want to buy $750,000 of your nifty widgets. Um, I want the software, though. Is there any way we can put those together? And the business owner to date is saying, I can't just eat that on my balance sheet, even though I know that I'll make a lot more money in the long run if I could. And there was really no mechanism to do that. So we were the fund that would come behind that tech company and say, don't ever sell your assets to anybody. We'll buy all of them, bake it into your recurring revenues, and we'll participate in that. And so we get the benefit. So all we are is a balance sheet as a service. We're the balance sheet where the hardware lives, and we get the revenue participation. And over time, we make a very nice return on owning those. And that enables that business owner to get out of the business of selling hardware, be in the business of solving a problem. It shifts box selling revenue into recurring revenue. Their valuation goes up, and they can their their customer acquisition cost goes down, and their lifetime value increases. So it's a really powerful thing. So we'd say, okay, if your valuation goes from here to here, and our cost of capital fits inside that, you should do the deal. And that's that's what we've been doing, and we're you know approaching about a hundred million under management, and um, we've we've done that rinse and repeated it a dozen times. So that's kind of the legacy wise what we've been doing, and we started it because we couldn't believe that nobody was doing that. I you know I love the the you know inside baseball of this. I mean it is you guys are so ingrained, and it's such a you know a, you have to know that this even exists, otherwise everyone's kind of just walking right by anything like this. And it again makes perfect sense, um, and and absolutely. Well, and there's that's that's a theme. A theme. There's a big theme in what we do. Of everybody assumes that that problem's already been solved, but we keep finding the frustration that it turns out it hasn't really. Everybody assumes a bank will lend for hardware against revenue. They won't. They don't. They never have, and they never will. And so there's there's a lot of assumptions in finance, and I think in decentralized finance, assuming that oh somebody's somebody's already thought of that, or there's already a, a way to do that. When the world's changing very very fast, and, and the reality is. The innovation in finance really hasn't kept up in any way. I mean, the, the 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 interesting thing is, I think when we started, we we didn't fully appreciate how big this problem was, and I think that's something that's worth mentioning. When we started, we thought, look, this is a eh, maybe a maybe a couple of billion dollar problem, and we can probably you know build towards that that goal. 
the reality is, and this is just U.S. facts and data alone, there's a trillion dollars worth of hardware bought and sold in the U.S. on an annual basis, right? So, uh, and when you when you think of the definition of hardware, hardware is any hard asset. It could be an airplane. It could be an IoT sensor that goes in the back of a truck. Um, it could be servers sitting in a data center um, wherever in Omaha, right? So there's there's literally very little that we don't consider hardware, uh, quote unquote. And and I think the most important thing is that once we start looking at the universe from the lens of does that physical thing enable revenue or is it critical to the revenue generation, then then what we do starts to just open up more and more doors in terms of how we think about the application of where where our uh, solution fits. So, um, so I mean, look, and, and Joel's right. There's, and, and and we've had to learn that there's stuff that's sexy in the blockchain world and stuff that's not. A lot of what we do in the traditional world is not sexy, right? I mean, this is not stuff that people think about. People don't think about where their where their Dell Dell Blade servers are sitting and and if they're <laughs> and if they're doing anything of value apart from depreciating on a uh, on, on a rack, right? So so I think for us, part of the education has been how do we how do we position things that kind of see that initial. Uh, spurt and growth and adoption on the um, in the DeFi world and, and and are interesting to people in the DeFi world. So, um, yeah, so we could even just use jo- Joel's example, or you know, I can give another one in terms of how we how we see these real. So, so let me give the one sentence like what we're trying to do with the protocol, and that'll give you a sense of the different applications for it. So, so we believe we're the first blockchain application that enables DeFi yield generation that's backed by real real world assets and their revenue streams. I mean, that's that's basically it. Okay. Everything that you see out there today, a majority of the projects that are quote unquote real world asset backed are just centralized, um, or or it's essentially a pure play crowdfunding type of scenario. Right? And we've seen a lot of these with, um, you know, I think even the Ritz Carlton tried to like launch a hotel and fractionalize a sale of the unit. You know, essentially taking a, a fractional ownership model and putting it putting on the blockchain. And these are all they're interesting, but they're all very centralized ways of doing it. Uh, and there's no there is no, and from what we've seen, there is no Web3 protocol that's actually backed by real asset revenue. And so our goal is to democratize this marketplace. And so essentially give asset owners that have revenue coming off their assets a way to monetize that today as opposed to waiting for future revenue streams. And on the other side, give token holders or users that store of value that's backed by real-world revenue streams and do it in a way that's fully decentralized. So that's that's like the the gist of what we're doing here. So... I mean, so so s- simple example again. This is not our sexy MVP or, or initial use case, but we'll we'll at least we will talk talk it through with you guys so you guys can get a sense of how someone can use it, right? So, imagine you're a um, a small business owner that has a fleet of maintenance trucks that goes around town servicing vehicles. Business is good. You've got a fairly predictable revenue stream off of each vehicle. You know, you know, one vehicle equals X amount of dollars on a monthly basis. Great. So, what you would do is if you want to grow your business today. Is if you approach a bank, then you've got the age-old problem, like Joel was describing, of how do I get more credit to go buy a new Mercedes Sprinter van or whatever it is in order to keep growing my business? Oh well, I can't. I got to build my balance sheet, wait six months for the cash flows to come in, save it off, and then maybe in six months, if I go back to the bank, they'll see my balance sheet's healthy enough and they'll give me a loan to expand. God forbid that that vehicle is customized in any way for your business, because then nobody will finance it. Yep. So, so this is this is a and this is just one you know simple use case, and we we've done some work in the traditional space in this already, so we know this place space well. Um, what what this ask what this business owner could do then is essentially come to the protocol, 
show the protocol exactly what they've done in terms of their historical performance and pledge future revenues or share future revenues to the protocol and essentially make monthly deposits, monthly transfers into the protocol. Uh, and on the other side, we've got liquidity providers who will essentially buy a part of that future revenue stream and get yield for it. That That's it, right? Now, how we do that and do it in a way that's essentially fractionalized NFTs that are that have utility value that allow that to happen is is kind of the secret sauce that goes behind how we bring this together. But that's that's in a nutshell what we're trying to do. So as a so the, the value prop is as a as as a small in this example as a small business owner, you're no longer constrained by traditional finance. You you can actually access a market that historically you would never have been able to access and get liquidity from future value of your cash flows today to grow your business at a rate that competitors who don't have, or who haven't thought of going this route um, can't. I, so I'll, I'll pause there. I, ha- I, have, I have so many questions. Of course, of course. Let, let, let's start, let's start with the big one. How, how is this regulation? How are you guys regulating this and, and what does this fall under? Cause it sounds like you're, you're creating a security. Yeah. Well, that, that's a really good point. And keep in mind, um, regulation is very much, in our DNA in terms of understanding where we are. We, we're in a very regulated space and we created an asset class that had no formal definition prior and we had to create the entire legal ecosystem around yeah. that from scratch. Hence why I'm so excited to hear. quality time with SEC attorneys and we talk to attorneys literally every single day and, and have for years and years because we've had to go through all of like, even, even in our traditional fund, what is it? Is it a security? The answer is no. We actually don't have. Uh, I, I used to have all the securities licenses, and none of it applies. So, in the, it turns out that when you focus on revenue, and and, and there's there are more answers to this, but I just want to put this in the back of your mind. Revenue is its own beast because when you have a revenue share or a royalty type stream, and you haven't lent anybody any money because all you did was uh, was collateralize something then you you've, you fall into a really interesting gray space. So for example, we've spent, um, in, our, in our legacy business, we've had the, the pleasure of having you know, 20 E&Y associates, Ernst & Young associates on the other side because they're trying to figure out how to audit you know, one of our major investors, and they can't figure out what we are because we're, we don't fit into any given box. And we, we think that's a strength. And now that's hard in the institutional world. It's very hard to raise money on a tra- going into you know somebody uh, going into a, a hedge fund and saying, "Here's something you've never seen before and don't know how to classify. Will you please give us tens of millions of dollars?" And most of them say, "We can't. We literally don't know how to allocate to that because it doesn't fit anywhere." But we sure do like your return profile. And every now and then we find one that we say can put on a cowboy hat and say, you know what, let's find a way to actually do this. And that's that's been our entire investor base to date is uh, th- those those exceptional type ones. So you're absolutely right, Jay, that there is a um, that it, it, the regulatory world is it is not sure what to do with these kinds of things. All we can do on our side is do the very best we can to be as compliant as we can and follow the rules, knowing that they may change a rule at some point and they may change a rule that affects our legacy business at some point. So far, so good. So far, we know our auditors ultimately understand. Sometimes they come to differing opinions, but they can all get to grips with everything we're doing works and makes sense. It's just hard to fit it into legacy systems. Yeah. So the, um, so, so to get a little more specific, right? So the NFTs that represent the 
future value of revenue that we're getting from that that the asset owner is getting from from their asset being deployed really is a utility token that gives token holders the ability to vote on what types of assets are coming in, what type of liquidity is sent out, and really it's all handled through a through a DAO. It's, it's a, a utility model and B, decentralized where there's no single person making a decision on we want this asset, we don't want this asset. We believe that this much, you know, this asset's future revenue streams are worth X and therefore we're going to pay out 30% of X to the asset owner at any given point in time. So so the goals for us, we're, we're facilitating that marketplace and doing it in a way that's through a DAO that we don't actually have any control over. There's some early initial verification layers in terms of, hey, are you actually, you know, is your revenue stream really that good, like, you know, for an asset or putting their assets in the, on the platform? So there's some validation layers and verification layers, which will be... Fortunately, that's what we've been doing for years, and we know how to kick it off the right direction. Yeah. And a lot of that is, like, it's rules-based. It's algorithmic. It's not... And this is partly where some of the patent stuff that we have. I mean, so that's, so that's it's a completely it's a third-party type of uh, endeavor there. So... So we believe, and of course, look, the SEC is going after, you know, fractionalized NFT situations where I think I believe most of that's really, you know, more Ponzi-like unsubstantiated models that don't really have, uh, uh, you know, anything backing their staking farming rewards that are coming out of there. So I think we're, we're kind of staying away from that space completely uh, in terms of how we, how the NFTs, the fractionalized NFTs will actually be used uh, within our protocol. So I'm curious, is the asset owned by the protocol and you effectively rent it to the owner or do you finance it for them? Like what's the actual legal structure of who, who owns the asset? Yeah, the, the asset, owner. I mean, so it, it can vary, right? In some situations, yeah, I mean, in most situations, the asset owner owns the asset or has legal rights over the asset, right? Uh, and so for us, really, it's a question of are we enabling um, them to buy the next asset, the next truck, the next whatever, in order to keep growing their business? And then and obviously we'll have to have bad actor safeguards and all the other stuff, which we're going through the process of designing to make sure we're not, uh, you know, losing people's money that are coming through the protocol. And that's but the whole thing is it's, it's all algorithmic and rules based. So there's, there's minimal uh, intervention to do there. So the, the contract is literally a, a binding contract that me as an asset owner who has revenue coming from my assets will be submitting X amount of this revenue on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, daily, daily basis, whatever it is uh, into the, into the uh, into the treasury of the protocol, and then the token holders will have the uh, you know essentially have rights to that treasury, and then be able to vote on how that treasury decides what to do with those funds. Um, there's obviously some opportunities because we're we're building a true treasury, which is actually backed by USDC, USDT, whatever whatever stablecoin assets we have as well. You know, which which are then able to be farmed, and uh, that's a, that's a separate topic. But there, there's there's other things you could do once you have that treasury and that base built up. Uh, within DeFi, but really the, the function would be what assets do we want to be a part of this treasury? And then, you know, theoretically, no one should ever want to redeem their tokens because the value of that token is always more in the future as the asset pool keeps growing. And if you want do want to redeem it, then you get today's value for what that token is, not not the future revenues that token is theoretically going to see. So, so uh, yeah, so that's that's how we that's how we think about that. So, so real quick on that. The, so, the tokens are, are are they in the wild? Are they able to be on any decks, or is it only internal to a, a centralized kind of exchange that you guys are running? No, uh, it's a dex launch. Okay, yeah, it's it's not it's not going to be centralized. Yeah, it's a dex launch, and we've you know there's 
the the goal is to rebase uh, so duplex rebasing so there's two layers of tokens one at the 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 asset pool level and and we're working through some of this logic right now where um do we tie it at an asset level or do we tie similar assets vehicle asset pool you know real estate asset pool some other there's different there's different layers of aggregation and different layers of pooling we could do that allow uh counterparties on the other side to say oh look vehicles look interesting oh no 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 i only want the you know the, the porsche rental as sub asset pool right so there's there's some level of what what will work in the marketplace and how do we position it but the idea is like it's it's completely transparent uh, and then and then based on the actual revenue streams being pushed into the protocol that rebases on a daily basis so hey i was supposed to give you 100 dollars today i gave you 101 great that yield number ticks up i was supposed to give you 100 i gave you 98 it ticks down so an asset a uh, a uh, 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 a user on the other side can can very, very clearly see what's happening with that asset pool or asset and make a decision on what they want to do with with that with that holding that they have and i i've always had the 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 vision that it gets really really interesting when you have that that uh, secondary token layer that's the aggregate of all the underlying assets because that's where you have that really potent store of value saying i'm holding a digital asset token that is backed by everything where there's a whole lot of things that have to go wrong before there's nothing behind my my currency and i think that's i think that's going to be a really uh important part of the narrative going forward is to have a scaling um, to be able to really store value at scale in a transparent way that has real value behind it and the value that's actually growing over time, not shrinking over time, and isn't relying on other people participating in order for you to keep getting your payout and yield. It's, it's, it's actually an organically stable value storage. And I think when you aggregate that and start thinking in the terms of, as we've seen, like there's a whole lot of assets out there that that need this kind of solution. And if you get even if you just had 10 different profiles of them, which is about what we run right now, then a lot of stuff has to go wrong before you're not seeing the the storage and the value and the yield and the performance that you really wanted to see. So what phase are you guys at right now of your roadmap? We have um, designed and architected. We have all the legal entities in place and operating, and we set it up very carefully where the, the DAO is separate from the treasury, which is separate from the, the design. And, and so we've set it up as decentralized as we can and in a way that can really scale that way. And that there was a lot of thought that went into that, even the jurisdictions of, of where we were and where we are with those. Um, so the legal entities are set up. The front end functionality of the, the token functions, you can go to spaceprotocol.io and buy token. And um, and that, you know, that does move into our treasury. We do and we get that um, that uh, that value immediately. So that functionality is there. And we also have fully architected what the backend protocol should look like to get to MVP. Now we're just starting to uh, actually code it with our developers. Developer. So we're that's kind of where we're at. I don't know what you call that stage, but that's where we are. We're, start, we're starting dev. We expect launch um, mid-Q2 is a two and a half months, three months out from now yeah. is when we'll have the MVP on the uh, up and running. Um, we expect, um, uh, you know, there'll be obviously iterations as, as we evolve how the treasury works and a couple of those things. We, we've, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of, as a part of what we're doing, there's, there's really like three, I guess, uh, partly if you leave aside the Web3 decentralized approach that we've taken, there's two more fairly interesting things that we've had to develop in our architecture. One is a new, e- a new EIP, uh, Ethereum Improvement Protocol. Because there is, believe it or not, there there is, and we, we didn't we didn't realize this was the case, but there is no EIP out there that allows us to do what we're doing, 
And so we've essentially had to design our own in order to, in order to make this uh, in order to make this work. And really, it's it's you know it'll, it'll use part of the EIP eleven fifty five standard and then additional logic for the asset token logic mapping assets to the to the asset level um, tokens and then some duplex rebasing that we need, need to do. So that's going to fit in within our new EIP standard EIP fifteen forty three. So that's that's I guess one one fairly significant innovation that's come as a as a result of our design and architecture. And the second is, look, we we intend on using IPFS as a as a storage layer uh, on our side. So obviously, you know, taking the benefit of the Filecoin protocol as much as we can uh, to enable enable this. So so there's a little bit of there's, there's a lot of thought and nuance that's gone into how we've architected it. Uh, Dev starting, I think uh, our learning curve is now on what's the first sexy asset to bring on the protocol. And right? I think uh, are people going to be excited about IoT hardware that's sitting in the back of a truck somewhere? I don't know. Um, we'll we'll need to have more discussions around that. But uh, but the but the good news is right. We have existing relationships and we have these existing businesses that we already work with where this is just a natural fit. So. So we have access to you know forty, fifty, sixty million dollars worth of assets that we can bring on to the protocol on day one. So it's not it's not like we're sitting around waiting. Uh, we can be our own guinea pig, and then not only and, and then very rapidly as we as we see different verticals that we want to go after. Maybe it's real estate. Maybe it's something else. We can we have those networks established already. Just bring people on, uh, um, uh, and then and then a, and build the total value locked in the protocol from from day one in a, in a pretty fast way, and then increase adoption from there. So you're saying uh, you're doing an EIP. Are you building this on ETH and you're actually getting an EIP deployed to ETH or are you doing an ETH fork and did you did a change to that? No, it's it's on it's on ETH and then we'll uh, and then what we'll yeah, it's 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 on ETH. Oh, so, interesting. So when is your EIP going live? Uh, TBD. Uh, we'll we'll okay. let you know as soon as we we're we're kind of in the middle, midst of that planning process right now, so we'll we'll uh, we'll have at least the documentation should be within the within the March, yeah, within the month, and then and then we should see functionality like rapidly after that. How, how hard is it to get an EIP adopted by Ethereum? I've never had that problem. Uh, like, we'll, we'll we'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, we'll let you know. Um, it, it's we're, we're in that process, right? We're, we're we're actively writing that out. We're we're working on that right now. So we'll. I don't have a good answer for that. It's real, yeah, we interview a lot of teams. And you're the first one going after your own EIP. Normally, it's like just you know add a couple more smart contracts on top of it to figure it out. So, what was the reasoning you know to do it that way versus versus again just adding on a, a couple of existing ones, existing smart contracts? It's actually, they don't, they don't, I mean, the short, short answer is there is there is nothing there that solves. I mean, that we will use existing ones, but there's nothing there that act, that purely solves what we're trying to do. I mean, so early on, we actually had this discussion around, should we be a layer one? I mean, that was that was kind of like where we started. And we're like, that's a lot of work and a lot of different types of problems. And so, okay, look, let's let's not do that right now. Let's maintain the optionality for us to get there. We can always build bridges to whatever we need to, Solana, you know, wherever we need to go, we can go. Um, so I think we start, you know, but then as we got into it, we realized that there's a certain contract logic that just doesn't exist that we, we're going to have to do from scratch. And that's that's kind of the the genesis for the new EIP. There's also, it's, it's important to us and kind of goes back to our DNA of designing the, the way something really needs to look in order to scale instead of just taking existing things and, and bolting them together and saying, it'll be fine. And we'll solve that when we get there. Well, that's fine at very, very early stages. But when you start putting millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of pressure on things, you tend to find cracks. So we, we, we take that first approach of, 
Let's engineer it where it's engineered correctly without over-engineering it to actually do the functionality that we need to do. And, you know, obviously going into it, we had no idea that we, we that there was going to have to be some new protocol design. But uh, with our developers, it, it just, it made sense and said, okay, this is actually the, the right answer. Um, it would, so it's always walking that line between, you don't want to rebuild everything that's already been built, but sometimes the stuff that's there doesn't necessarily fit and, and you, you cause more problems than you solve if you don't use the, uh, the correct engineer. The, so talk to, talk to us a little about your team. Tech team, are you guys centralized, decentralized? You, you know, who, who's working on this, uh, on this one with you guys? Yeah, we've got a, uh, it's a decentralized team. It's literally uh, across multiple different time zones and continents at this point in time. Joel and I just happen to be in Colorado because that's where we live. Um, we've got um, teams that are, um, part of our team is in uh, the East Coast, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, and then part of our team is, uh, um, uh, you know, in unfortunately conflict-torn parts of the world right now. Um, so we're we're <laughs> luckily they're all safe, and for the most part, in in places where they've been able to uh, keep themselves safe. So we're we're working through that. We have other parts of our team that's uh, based in India as well for some of the uh, uh, for some of the other um, smaller bits and pieces that we're trying to get together. So from a designer architecture perspective, we you know it's it's. Poland, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, um, U.S., India, and then um, I don't think we had a discussion with a few folks in. Uh, I'm forgetting. What, yeah, so that's that's generally where we are right now. It's decentralized um, tech design and um, an arc. And we've worked with uh, we we're specifically working with people who have worked on projects that we know and respect and who, that, who were involved in some of those developments and who have seen the mistakes and the problems. And, and we had a lot of conversations on what, how, how would you design X, Y, or Z differently? And how do we make sure we don't run into that? And so it's been, uh, it, we've, we've had the great unfair advantage of having very experienced designers, both just from a general architecture side and then from a dev side as well. So we're, we're in a very early phase of this asset class, <clears throat> is my opinion, and it may or may not be true, um, but, but very early. And I think what you guys are tackling is, is a real problem, and, and you know, I, I actually believe that you guys have a legitimate solution to it. Are, do you believe that you know, we're there yet? To, for people to understand, like the adoption rate is so small for for blockchain. You know, do you feel that the target market um, that that would utilize this uh, is ready for for cryptocurrency blockchain adoption, um, and vice versa? Do you have the the uh, user pool ready that that understands what you're doing to be able to to invest in it appropriately? Yeah, that, that that's a really really good question, Jay. I, I think. Um, on the asset side, the answer is probably no. However, that's where we eat, sleep, and breathe. So we have a lot of really unfair advantages of bringing assets on. We we happen to own two large asset pools that have diverse assets across them, and we happen to have existing business relationships with uh, large companies that have tons of assets and who are really interested in this. So if we were starting this just as um, you know two two guys in a garage who have a pretty good idea and had to go figure all that out. Then no, it'd be but but we've already been figuring that part out for years, and I think on the other side of it, in terms of people with liquidity who are looking for yield and storage of value and niche non-correlated returns, I think that that side is ready because there's a lot of um, you know there, there's obviously a lot of uh, cryptocurrency projects that are trying to do that and they're getting a lot of attention. So I think we're at a, a weird space where we happen to have 
the strange background to bring the side that probably needs a little more coaching. But fortunately, we have a lot of momentum there. And then the other side of it, I think, absolutely is ready when they're seeing what kinds of what kinds of things we're able to do and able to see it transparently that, no, we're not just taking one person's money to give it to the other person and, and call it a, a return. We're, we're building something that is, or as I said before, organically, fundamentally stable and growing. And that's actually hard to find, but that's what we've been doing for years. It's, it's real world cash flows that are, that are enabling that yield that's, that's going out to, to token holders. And I think that's, that's that in and of itself. And it's not, you know, it's it's significant yield. It's, or it's I should say it's competitive yield with with some of the other protocols in the marketplace that are out there. And so, from an attention standpoint, I think like Joel's right. I mean, uh, we're less concerned about the crypto liquidity. We're, we're it's really more on the can we can we get those. Uh, again, this came, came, comes back to do we have the sexy enough assets that gets the crypto liquidity excited? I mean, that that's literally what it is. And and kind of. Before- Planning that launch and planning that positioning is really that's that's what we need to focus on as as kind of the, the next step. We know we know we can get the TVL in the in the nine figures relatively fast, but is it the is it the kind of TVL that will attract the other side of the of the marketplace? And it, and look, I've, I've built two set of marketplaces or been a part of building those two set of marketplaces before. It's not easy. You got to spin both up, and they both have to reach a critical mass and a virtuous cycle to be able to self sustain. And that's that's our goal here. And just just to bring that home and just to make an example of what I'm talking about, you know, the example Raghav gave earlier of somebody who has a fleet of uh, even specific Mercedes Sprinter vans that are generating revenue every month. Well, what he didn't say is we already have a fleet of Mercedes Sprinter vans that are generating revenue every month. We also have fleets of IoT track and trace stuff. We have fleets of of screens that are developed. I mean, we have uh, active conversations in the aircraft space. We are we're already in the luxury vehicle space. So we we have a lot of this that we can seed the protocol with but if we didn't then you know maybe we wouldn't be the right guys to build it but it's because that's that's exactly the point like is the is this too early i think in a lot of cases yes but in our case we happen to be a lot further along and able to at least get to critical mass and um and get the asset side moving and the liquidity side i think is ready and the, but the value comes not from not from joe and Raghav or what joe and Raghav are doing. Right. it's from the adoption that we know that there's asset holders out there who are just looking for this uh and those right. are the discussions that we're most excited about and the ones that we think will really take this you know from nine figures to 11 figures or 12 figures or whatever, whatever that ends up being hey i'm curious so how does that onboarding work so let's say whatever i want to buy a sprinter van right so do i sign a contract with like dow llc and then dow llc has that like rev share contract and then dow llc funds the sprinter van and then if they don't pay dow llc for closes like can you can you walk me through like because obviously tying a real world asset and a real world cash flow to on chain has always been exceedingly difficult so how, how does that actually work out in like a practical sense especially when it goes wrong right because i'm sure it's gonna be some form yep. of default yeah so i think i think you've you've generally got it right right i think look asset owners um you know we they have to submit certain certain level of minimal information kyc whatever that allows us allows the protocol and 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 users on the other side to get comfortable with yes this is real yes they currently have access to this historically this has been proven and so on and so forth there's there's a certain level of uh is this going to do what you think it's going to do is this asset going to do what you think it's going to do um component to it and then once that once that has been established and proven. And there's a, there's a, there's, there's two layers to it. One is just the, um, the resilience or the uh, lack of a better word, the, uh, the social proof, like, does it, is this thing working? And historically, you know, it's not like a Yelp review, but, 
but you know, everyone has a rating. Um, you know, asset one performs well, historically it's performed well. And so there's, so as the users come on board, there's a natural selection that ends up happening with, uh, with performing assets moving to the top and non-performing assets of bad actors just dropping off the platform. So I think there's, there's that natural mechanism built in there, but then the protections really are on the contract. Sorry, Joel, uh, let me just finish. Uh, uh, But on the, uh, on the contract side, there's, there's the, the, the other protections are really, like you said, look, there's, it was, we'll check UCC filings. We'll make sure that there's, that there's from a lean position that, that the protocol, there's, there's a real world enforcement component that comes in which will be a combination of like the smart contract being enforced and then and then using real world court systems to enforce reclamation of assets or whatever we need to do uh, in those situations right and those and there's no and none of that stuff needs to be centralized i mean we can there's there's uh, a, a lot of that is in, in fact just you know you have you have very specific parties debt collection agencies anyone you want to work with to solve for the bad actor problem and reclaim whatever you can uh, into that um, back into that ecosystem. And so if somebody doesn't pay, does the title then default to be owned by the DAO? So let's say I have a Sprinter van, I don't pay, so then the DAO ends up owning a Sprinter van upon foreclosure. That's right, or the liquidated value. Yeah. The one, one really nice element about this asset class, Stefan, is exactly uh, what, what you're asking is it really lends itself well to small step proof one slightly larger step, prove it slightly larger. Cause when you're doing assets, it's um, typically the problem that's being solved in the, in the asset space where you're trying to unleash growth is you have to repeat the same transaction over and over and over and over and over. It's very rarely walking in with a huge lump sum and saying, you know, we're not buying with one, with one check or one transaction. You're not buying the next several years worth of assets. You're buying the next one that has imminent deployment and imminent revenue. And if that works, then you buy the one after that. And then if that works then you buy the next three. And so you're kind of stepping into, and this is literally how, how we operate and have been operating. Every transaction we make has more information than the one before it. And so we'll, we frequently, even in our, even in our legacy business, which is still up and running, by the way, we didn't abandon that to build this. Um, the frequently we say, okay, we would like to buy $10 million worth of your assets. Let's start with a very small amount and show us that it works. And then we'll buy the next amount. And if that works, then we'll start accelerating from there because it's, it is that element of social proof. And there's, and the other thing is it's so aligned for anybody that has a vision of growth in assets, you just become their biggest hardware customer. And so they're highly incentivized to not be bad actors because they need you there for the next one and the next one and the next one after that. And those are the scenarios that are the, the best fit when it comes to uh, hardware-based revenue. Oh, because the person contracting with you is the hardware manufacturer, not the person purchasing the hardware most of the time. And so you have a much hard, larger share of their revenue and you're way more impactful than like the dude who installs the IoT device in their truck. In some cases, yeah, and we, we're always looking at those incentives and, and always paying very careful attention to that. And, and that's, but but again, the whole point is to decentralize that away so it's not just Joel and Raghav. It's just we know how it needs to be designed, and we can make it scalable and repeatable where it can rinse and repeat with other. I mean, it's it's ultimately it's algorithmic and rules based. I mean, that, that's what we do on a daily basis. So there's no reason why this the, 
you don't need us, I guess. Is the point. Well, so, so my, my question related to that is, is what is the, the sweet spot or kind of maybe the minimum size deal you want to touch? Cause I doubt you want, you know, a, some kid with a lemonade stand to, to take up your time and, and go through the audit process and everything else where at the end of the day, yeah. there's no real asset. They may generate revenue. Um, but also in the same sense, you know, are, are you guys prepared to take on, you know, somebody goes, well, yeah, I, I I'm, you know, we're, we're XYZ airline and, and, you know, we, we just don't, we're, we're tired of dealing with traditional banks. You know, we've got, you know, $2 billion worth of planes we'd like to, to do this with, you know, what, what's kind of the, the, the sweet spot for, as you ramp up over the next year? Yeah. So the, 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 the ramping is always a challenge, right? Uh, to give you a sense of when we started our business, we were doing, um, deals in the sub, I would say in the hundred thousand dollar range, uh, over the last couple of years, that's grown to about five to $10 million range. And we anticipate that's going to continue to grow. But a lot of that is, like Joel said, initial small purchases, better data, better information, bigger purchases. So even with the example of an, of an airline that wants to offload a bunch of their planes, get some liquidity and go out and buy a brand new fleet or continue to grow their fleet, it's a similar similar kind of dynamic. It wouldn't be $2 billion day one. It would be, well, let's buy the first two. Let's see how they perform. Let's prove it out. Let's make sure that it is what it is. And if a pandemic hits and you have to shut down, then uh-oh. Right. So it's a, it's a proving, it's a proving mechanism and, and, and that, and that those proof points are important for anyone in the protocol, any, any user in the protocol to see and have transparency into and actually track what that revenue stream looked like. So, um, are you guys, are you guys, we, are you guys running insurance, uh, uh, alongside of this? Do we run an insurance? Are, are, are you guys insuring any, any part of the protocol? Uh, we will, we haven't, we haven't gotten there yet in terms of how and what I think the idea would be. Yes, we would, we would want to, uh, like, just like we do it's, with our existing business, right? There's no, it's, it's yeah. just too early, but we do, we have explored, um, you know, creating reinsurance pools and some of those things. And it absolutely lends itself to that eventually, but that that's where the doubt to decide. It's not for us to say what, what the protocol should be doing three years from now. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I mean, I'm going to challenge, I'm gonna challenge that. Like who the hell are the Dow people? Like they don't know what you're doing. They, this isn't their vision, you know, it is, you know, and, and to be clear the the, the, the rush in some cases to decentralize, I think is, you know, again, that's, that's web three, but if I'm investing in, in your, your protocol and your team, I, I, I want the experts that, that understand this stuff. The DAO people yep. are, well, are profit based. can make that decision too, saying, we want you guys making that decision. Go figure out how to do the insurance because you know how to do it. Yeah, I think, and, and we can. Look, it's, 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 it's on the roadmap. Is it prioritized uh, early? No. Uh, I think there needs to be a minimum asset pool when it starts to make sense and a TVL when it starts to make sense. And, and that's when we'll pick that thread up. I think uh, absolutely. Look, and, we, and this, is, this is something... This is a classic Joel and Raghav debate internally, which is healthy, which is, uh, hey, I see the ball, I need to hit it, we need to get insurance today. It's like, no, 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 we don't need to. So, but that's, that's a part of the evolution and process of how we want to bring this to life and, and how we are bringing it to life. Yeah, and again, my, Jay, my, question, was really, really my question was really related to, again, how are you guys going to interact with this? And, and you know, really the challenge is, look, there's, there's tons of DAOs and, and they absolutely push it off there. Um, you know, from my personal perspective, and again, nothing, nothing's advice or whatnot, you know, I, I, I like teams. That, that are experienced that know what they do, what they're doing, and I think there's absolutely a, a time and place for for DAOs to have governance. Um, but something as as integral as that, I, I would just challenge: is that the right decision for a bunch of people that are, yeah. are interested in one thing, one thing only? That's their return. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's a that's a very very good point. And I what you bring up, 
whether you meant to or not, is there is a lot of really, really cool stuff you can do with diversified high yielding cash flows. There, there's a lot of really sexy in terms of financial engineering stuff that you can do, everything from uh, securitization to derivative products. I mean, basically, we're talking about to- a fundamental shift in, in commodities. If, if you start financing them differently, there's a lot of bets that can be made in the protocol that we could build out where, where you can essentially make a commodity futures transactions market that could very naturally ride alongside the same thing. So um, should we do them? I Yes, do them all. But in which order? I don't know. We, we have to decide. First, let's get to minimum viable product and make sure the thing works. And then start seeing, okay, what does the market really want? And I think, I think that it's important to acknowledge that we have no idea. We, we know what the market wants today, and we know what it wanted 10 years ago. But what the, finance, what the decentralized finance market is going to look like in three or four years, we probably haven't barely conceived of what, it, what it's going to be asking for and what this kind of protocol will be able to enable that we're not thinking about today. Awesome. Yeah. Listen, you, you guys hit a ton of, th- ton of points, and there was a, a, a lot there. Stefan, was there anything we missed? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Uh, I think my only question was going to be if it's analy- uh, if it's like algorithmically determined about who's credit worthy and that algo is public, don't you run into an issue that that's going to be super easy to exploit for me to build a technically credit worthy submission because I know what the algo is and then get past and then basically rug you? Yeah, but but it's not, but but it's not. Just, I mean, it's it's algorithm, but there's also verification, right? So. Audited financials. I mean, yeah, if you can get PwC to sign off on that. Sure, you know, okay, then, okay. So it's more of a traditional, I, like it's traditional underwriting combined with algos to determine which type of assets, but it's more of like a traditional underwriting. Okay, okay. So it's not just like, hey, you send these eight documents and we'll send you money type situation. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. It's, it's, not like a, it's not like a persona, you know, scan your face. Kind of, it's, it's, you know, the idea is to have that blend. Of, of diligence that makes sense. And we, um, we saw that with the PPP loans. If you make something purely algorithmic, anybody can make themselves look any, any way. You have to have some sort of, um, at least, at least for, for now, and maybe things will be different. And I mean, maybe with all the, the, the total data driven collection we're going to, there may be a time and it may be in the relatively near future where you actually can algorithmically verify down to the truth. But until then the Dow is going to have to, elect and it's probably going to start with us people who actually know how to underwrite these and say wait a second show me this or i'm going to go on site and see it and i want to see that the vans are actually being built and i'm going to manually match vin numbers with the paperwork you gave me and that's the kind of stuff we do there's 80 percent of what we of what we do which is uh, i wouldn't say 80 maybe 70 percent of what we do is fairly common credit type underwriting there's then there's a thirty percent of what we do, which is more the equity style underwriting, right? When 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 VCs look at a deal, and so our our process is always a blend of both those. And so the question is, um, well, how much of that can you out, you know can you make rules based? Yeah. And, and that's really what we're. What we're and so then the DAO awesome, basically becomes kind of a, an agency that does the underwriting on behalf of the of the investors, right? So it becomes I mean it's, it stays decentralized, but just like lots of DAOs hire developers, etc. So your DAO would hire underwriters, and they probably start with you, right? But so then and so that's how it would scale up, where you'd have a whole team that would verify and vet these deals. That's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and it doesn't actually need to be us. I mean, it can be us to start off with, but there's. I mean, underwriting, there's a lot of underwriting firms out there, a lot of diligence firms out there. And this is, you could just have them on like a rotation, like, you know, on dollar amount or deal deal count or whatever. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And Stefan, I want to go back to something that Jay asked of what, what's the ideal size. We, 
I doubt that this protocol is going to be, um, you know, 50,000 small hardware transactions with 50,000 different users. I think it very naturally, and we're seeing this in our own business, it very naturally, the scale becomes larger and larger, more institutional transactions because you're solving such valuable problems. And the good news is that's actually easier to underwrite. You, that, I, I'd rather do diligence on five deals than 500 deals. And because you can do really good diligence on those five deals. And so there's a, there's always going to be that argument, but we're not necessarily trying to build a machine that can underwrite anything, anywhere, anytime, anyway, because I think that's very hard to build. And, and there's a lot of lending platforms that have tried to do that and, and with, you know, relatively low success in most cases, but to be able to build something that can uh, move, you know, a hundred million dollars elegantly with a reasonable amount of cost to it, I think that happens at larger scale. And that's actually where the most interesting hardware problems are. The, I mean, the, the reality is it's, it's going to be a vertical-based approach. Vehicles, real estate, X, Y, Z, S. I mean, that's, that's how we think about it. It's not, um, yeah, like Joel, it's not everything under the sun. It's not every single IoT sensor sure, sure. out there. That's awesome, guys. Uh, and again, really, it, it's I always love these when we have like team mature teams that understand the asset class, understand the legacy business, and are trying to kind of find a way to merge these two together. Um, and really, really interesting, you know, at this point where you're at, where you still have a lot of these challenges, um, but but you know, again. The asset class changes so often that even if you made the decision two weeks ago, it may change because you know now there's more executive orders and things are things are you know in a state of flux. Um, but but kind of going forward, yeah. what what else are you seeing in in Web three that really has got you guys excited that you're um, you know either similar to what you're doing or or you know complementary or just anything that you know NFT projects you think are uh, fun and exciting? Joel, I'll let you go first. Yeah. Um... I'm seeing one of my favorite, um, and this is not something that a lot of groups would know. I'm not going to just start name dropping projects because somebody somewhere will criticize anything that I name and, and it'll make me look like a fool. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I've seen are uh, some of the adoptions of, um, of aspiring to currencies within ecosystems. Um, for example, we work very closely with an entrepreneur who has an entire ecosystem of um, of uh, vending machines and point of sale equipment deployed uh, globally, but concentrated in uh, Southeast Asia in particular. And when you have both sides of that ecosystem, you can do really interesting currency things in there. And and um, and developing that on the blockchain is some of the things we're seeing. Like, actually solves major banking problems in the uh, when you're talking about an underbanked world or a, a, a unreliably banked world, then you're actually giving um, portions of society the ability to reliably store and transact value and know that it's going to be there. And it actually removes a big corruption element in some cases. And I, I love that. I love seeing, I love seeing the technology um, build better, fundamentally better systems that are solving real problems. And when it comes to something like finance I and mean, decentralized finance is just, that's such a mind boggling concept because finance is, you know, it's, it's, it's ethereal, it's invisible, and it's faith-based. It's it's like a religion in a lot of ways that everybody kind of has to participate in. Well, when you can decentralize that, then it, it removes a lot of abuses. Um, and so I really, really like those projects that are trying to build better transaction abilities and trying to build ecosystems that actually operate in the real world and can be applied in systems that that desperately need those kinds of uh, those kinds of systems. Love it, love it, Regev. 
Yeah, I'll share. You know, there's uh, there's certain macro trends. I think the I think DeFi has created like this this uh, opportunity for payments and payment platforms to be completely diff, you know, completely uh, web three in a way that's uh, that's never been seen before. Uh, there's a couple of protocols that I like. I mean, guys that I've met that I think are smart and doing some pretty interesting stuff. You know, you know, Zebek is one. It's a continuous settlement protocol. There's a couple that that kind of have those types of flavors. Uh, well-funded, really smart teams um, that are that are just changing the dynamics of how money transfers, when it transfers. I mean, simple concept of uh, traditionally, why are people paid on a biweekly basis? Well, because they're paying the butt to pay them hourly, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, and think about the process. I mean, you see this today. I mean, there's 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 is- issues with with how traditional barrel systems work. I mean, so starting with something as simple as that, which is at the heart of almost all creation, like how do I get paid for the work that I do? I think there's opportunities that, I, that I'm excited about that I'm seeing in that space that you know that are, that are interesting and and kind of. I see overlaps with what we're doing as well, right? I mean, there's there's no reason for for people who are within space protocol to wait on a monthly basis to collect their invoices and you know net thirty terms or net whatever. It's, it's like no, that device has been out there for the last thirty days. It's been working every single day. Maybe it's ninety nine percent downtime. I didn't work for thirty five minutes that one particular day. So pay me, pay as you true pay as you go. Um, I think I think blockchain I think DeFi and blockchain is going to enable some significant uh, you know changes as far as that works, especially and you combine that with the gig economy and combine that with other you know labor and economic trends. I think you end up with with some fairly uh, unique opportunities there. I can absolutely validate that that talk. I was uh, speaking to some of the other, somebody the other day, and he was able to finally um, basically fill every open position he had with a single change to his ad. Um, and it was it was you'll be paid within forty eight hours for the work you did. So every other day you're being paid. Right. And I said, well, how much does your payroll department hate you? And he goes, they won't speak to me. But but every position's full. Every job site is is being worked. And so I think it really does speak to that's what. Um, that's what people want and almost need, you know, it, the elimination of the, the payday loans and, and these high interest, you know, scalpers, um, it, it would be a, a welcome thing across the globe, uh, and, and help lift, you know, an entire generation almost out of poverty to, to get that, you know, reoccurring revenue very quickly and not get into a, uh, predatory loan basis. So absolutely exactly. love it guys. It's yeah. been, it's been fabulous. And, and so again, I really want to thank both of you guys for coming on space protocol is, uh, I'm excited to see how it, it continues to go and, and, and run out. Um, but, you know, again, having true professionals uh, that understand this and understand the ri- the regulatory risks, because I like the fact that you at least understand who the SEC is, because sometimes I hear people talking about, well, we're going to do this with the token. And I'm like, well, did you create a security? And they're like, don't do that. You will yeah, go to they're jail. Like, they're like, what's the security? <laughs> First, you will pay a fine. And if you argue, then you'll go to jail. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going there one way or the other. So either document or not. So that it's, again... Absolutely fabulous. Where where can people uh, learn more? Where can they reach you and and uh, get involved with the project? Or if they've got assets, they'd like to, to get on your uh, get on chain. How can they do so? Yeah. So our URL is spaceprotocol.io. Check it out. It's uh, up and running. The light paper is on there. We'll we'll be adding some more collateral, and that's where we'll start to see some of the uh, the um, evolutions as we as it comes uh, comes along. Uh, if you want to reach us, Joel at spaceprotocol.io for Joel, Raghav at spaceprotocol.io, R-A-G-H-A-V. Um, yeah, look forward to hearing from folks and, and kind of uh, engaging with this uh, with the community and people that might want to put assets in here. Awesome, guys. 
Thank you so much, uh, Stefan. Enjoy the, the warm weather in, in uh, Mexico there, sir. And uh, for everyone else, have a great rest of the day and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Thank you. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. Why Whales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.